I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm Arthur Snell. I'm joined today by Sarah Hurst, who's a journalist who's been covering Russia for decades. She's a Russian linguist and editor of the newsletter, The Russia Report. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Sarah, uh, first off, tell us, uh, what is The Russia Report? The Russia Report is a weekly newsletter, which um, we've just had the 100th issue. Um, I started producing it during the pandemic. Uh, It's a weekly newsletter about what goes on in Russia and what Uh, Russia's activities have been abroad, which started out fairly modestly, but now obviously Russia's activities have expanded massively um, to a full-scale war. And one of the things I know that you spend a lot of time doing is focusing on what Russian media and Russians themselves on social media and and other forums, what they're saying. Um, So that's kind of where I wanted to focus today. Um, Obviously, Russia's invasion of of Ukraine has now been going since February. There's almost a universal perception outside the country uh, that it's been a disaster. But the Russian state is working incredibly hard to try to uh, continue to persuade its people, one, that it was a necessary action, and two, that it's going well. So what's your sense now of where the Russian population is in its perception of what's happening? It is difficult to make a blanket assessment of where they are. Obviously, there are different people at different stages of understanding. They've very much been somewhat deluding themselves. Well, that's putting it mildly. They have been deluding themselves about a lot of things. And um, with TV telling them that Ukraine is Nazi, that Ukraine is the enemy, and that it was going to attack Russia, and that the West is ranged against them, and that the West is a collective Hitler. That's one of the expressions that they use on Russian TV. They've used it repeatedly. Mm. Um, And then when questioned about this, well, then they sort of break down and say, well, Nazi doesn't really mean you necessarily support Hitler. It just means that you're Russophobic. Um, So then they realize that their logic doesn't actually go very far. and some people in Russia fully understand what's been happening and are against the war. Um, but um, I think certainly they would have some idea that things have not gone well. I think that probably I'm just I'm just speculating, but I think that probably um, the majority of people by now would realise that this was not the ideal plan. Um, and you didn't see on Victory Day on May 9th some kind of celebration. Of, yeah. of the war that you might have had if they'd had any success. Um, yeah. And they couldn't really even sort of celebrate destroying Mariupol yeah. they, uh, they, or capturing it. That, they know it doesn't look very good. And that's it's funny you mentioned Victory Day. Of, of course, um, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware that, that it's, it's a huge event in the Russian calendar, typically with major military parades throughout the Cold War era. People would sort of feverishly scan the different missiles and other weapon systems that would be paraded down Red Square and try and sort of get a sense of where the Soviet army was going. Um, 
And of course, it's a day which is all about the Russian victory over Nazism. So in many ways, it was the perfect day for President Putin to, to claim victory, to, to sort of talk about the importance of, of what, what they're doing in Ukraine. But it, it, it was a victory day without a victory, wasn't it? Exactly. And for them to not even be able to fake a victory, I think, says a lot. They, they really don't have a lot to show for this, and they can obviously see that they are having very serious economic problems. Um, we don't get to see exactly what's going on. Um, they've managed to shut down a lot of the independent media and the individuals who used to provide some form of reporting with videos of what was going on around the country. And a lot of that they've managed to shut down. So we don't really know what's going on inside uh, factories or places of work and how people feel, there, uh, whether lots of people are being laid off or whether they're even able to function there. But we can probably guess that things are not going very well at all. Yeah. I want to explore a little bit this idea of the, the kind of messaging that ordinary Russians are hearing when they watch state TV and particularly sort of these news discussion programs. There's a lot there about Nazism, isn't there? But what what lies behind that? Why is this such a powerful messaging tool for the Russian state? Well, it's probably the sole way that Putin has to express himself as being uh, on the good side and battling evil. Because it's fairly obvious to most people that you know, if you if you look objectively, Putin is a is basically a dictator um, with who's held sham sham elections for so many years, who um, reinstated him, himself in power um, so many times illegally, um, who doesn't allow any sort of human rights or um, any sort of expression whatsoever. So how can he present himself as the good guy? Well, only by claiming that he's fight, fighting the Nazis. So then everyone else, apart from him, is Nazi. Anyone who doesn't like him is Nazi. Yeah. Um, so and, uh, that was the um, glorious victory that the Soviet Union had. And Russia's taking ownership of that. Putin's almost taking ownership of it as if it's his personal victory. While trying to um, rewrite history that Ukraine was, was on the side of the Nazis. Now, there were some partisans who were, but it's, he's basically expanded that to being um, Ukrainians today are all Nazis, when in fact, large numbers of Ukrainians fought on the Soviet side and got all the way to Berlin. In fact, one was seen on a video uh, just today. I was looking at a video of a 97-year-old Ukrainian man who did actually get to Berlin yeah. in World War II. And his wow. home's now been destroyed by the Russians. I mean, how can you respond to that? Yeah. And um, in terms of the losses being suffered by Russia in this war, um, one of the really big questions seems to me to be the impact that this must be starting to have on the families and, and the friends of, of those who've, who've died or, or have been severely injured. People debate the numbers, but it's definitely seems to be more than 10,000 killed. And we're talking in a really short period of time, 10,000 Russian soldiers. Um, at a certain point, you know, it, it, it is surely impossible for even a sort of police state as Russia has become to kind of keep that information from the population. So what's your understanding of how that story is starting to kind of filter out into the wider society? Well, they haven't made that much secret of it, of their losses. And um, you can also look at the COVID pandemic and say that 
surprisingly, they admitted to a fairly high number of deaths, maybe not all the deaths, but uh, quite a startling number of deaths. For example, it went to a 1,000 a day, I believe, COVID deaths, which is a pretty high number. And they were taking this on the chin, as as Boris Johnson would say. Um, you would think there would be a reaction. Um, you know what kind of outrage we had in this country to the level of deaths and um, the reaction of the government, the failure to cope with it. Um, you'd think there'd be something, you know, but there wasn't. And this is part of the Russian yeah. suffering, that they actually get their virtue and their identity from their suffering throughout their history. And again, with World War II and the um, enormous losses in that. So um, that alone, you know, the number of deaths in the war um, doesn't necessarily work against Putin, but gives them that feeling that they are um, dying for, for a righteous cause. Um, so it could actually, in a, in a strange way, motivate them. Right. But uh, is I mean, does that extend to the families? I mean, a mother who's lost a son in, in a war, it, does, it doesn't tend to be somebody who's sort of happy that they died in, in a noble conflict. You know, that, that obviously the kind of natural human emotions normally take over. Yes. I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to judge people. I don't want to make um, assessments of uh, what they might be thinking in their minds or what all people um, say and do. But, for example, I've seen one relative of a young guy who was killed who just said, well, you know, she said, um, uh, if the the president decided this, um, that we needed to do this war, then we have to do it. I'm not a decision maker, you know, and so... um, it must be the right thing because he decided it. And that they often do sort of like to offload the responsibility to Putin as he's encouraged them to do. No one gets to make any kind of decision and they're taught to just um, believe that he knows what he's doing. Um, So of course they feel sad and upset, but at the same time they feel, well, there is a reason for this. Um, We, we are not the ones to ask what the reason is, but our leader knows what he's doing. Yeah. With that in mind then, uh, where do you sit on this uh, debate, uh, which I've seen sort of raging online, uh, and particularly uh, among uh, Ukrainian commentators, uh, particularly the ones who are, you know, English speakers who are, have a Western audience, about is, is this a story about Putin and Putin's bad decisions and, and obviously his propensity to do bad things? Or is this a wider story? Is there a story about Russians, individual Russian citizens' responsibility for allowing this situation to, to, to unfold, but also for the fact that it is basically an imperialist nation that hasn't really grappled with its own imperial history? Yes, that is it. We sort of assumed that the US had won the Cold War and that it was over and we could move on. But um, Putin has been saying we've got to have a multipolar world. We can't have uh, one country dominating. Although he seems to turn a blind eye to the fact that actually China is the um, equal largest power uh, with the US. So it's not. So it actually is a bipolar world anyway. It's just that Russia isn't isn't yeah. even seriously in the game. So without um, that economic might. Um, they've only got the military might to rely on. I certainly think that so many people have been involved in this. And then you also have Russian media, the, the propagandists, and uh, making making all, all this hate material that people consume. So, so many people involved in the war and everything around it and in propping up Putin, the local authorities. Um, as they say, you know, they always say, um, if you do nothing, you're an accomplice to evil. Um Whereas you see the opposite with Ukraine. You see every single Ukrainian wanting to do something to make their country independent. 
So, Sarah, I'd be interested on your views on Putin's uh, longevity, not necessarily from a specifically medical perspective, but but in terms of his sort of political future, his future in power. And then we could go back perhaps to think about, well, what does that mean for, for Russia itself? Well, until this war broke out where it's sort of thrown everything up into the air and you don't exactly know what's going to happen, I've always kind of thought that um, they would just have another Putin um, after this Putin if, that, um, yeah. if he suddenly dropped dead. The, the next person who is a lot like him, there are all kinds of people who are a lot like him, would just seamlessly take over and not a lot would change. Yeah, uh, It didn't look like anyone who was genuine opposition, such as Alexei Navalny, would, would get power. Um, but yeah. now there could be a, it's it's possible that with the um, economic issues there could be a total implosion and things could uh, be very different, but possibly not in a good way, the way we would like it. And one of the reasons I think as well is also that we don't have a very good model for people um, to emulate to just say, well, just have the Western system, and that's that will solve your problems um, because we're all struggling enormously, aren't we? Um, yeah. we don't know what we're doing anymore. Um, and, and we've just almost given up and said, well, yes, some people can't afford, afford food or heating, but we don't actually have an answer for you. Um, so, yeah. so you can't just uh, take that model like you would have done, tried to in a way in, in 1991 when Russia was attempting to become democratic and say, well, just copy what, what the West's done and yeah. you'll, you'll have something good. So we can't actually promise them anything. We've lost the faith in our own systems here in the West is really what you're saying. Yes, exactly. So um, we can't say, here's a model for you. Um, do this and your society will be fine. So, and that's un- it's unlikely that they would they would choose to do that at this stage anyway. Um, seeing how Russia is, and look look at the um, the sort of uh, craziness of Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya. You know, he's a warlord with his own personal army, and who knows what he could do if if things turn even worse than what they are now. Um, he wants power. There's all kinds mm. of people in Russia who want power, who might just fight yeah. it out between themselves. I think that might be a more likely scenario. If you don't get one particular person who's a bit like Putin, who can hold on to power. And are there people uh, waiting in the wings who who are a bit like Putin? I mean, if we, some of that sort of immediate inner circle of his, people like Patrashev, some of the others, are, are, are there any of those that it would be easy to imagine uh, stepping into Putin's shoes? Yes, um, that's exactly the type of person, or uh, Nurishkin, um, or even Vyacheslav Volodin, you know, the, the grey sort of characters who are um, repeating the same kinds of things that Putin says. Because I always say that Putin has never actually said anything meaningful in all of uh, his yeah. lengthy speeches and uh, lengthy press conferences that go on for hours. Um, uh, you try to find him saying something that uh, uh, has any substance. You can't actually find anything. Um, that's uh, his technique. He's, he just yeah. uses some catchphrases like, um, uh, you know, NATO, NATO expansion or we need to increase the birth rate and the same catchphrases come up every time. Um, so to do the job, you don't, really need to do that much because they're not even pretending that they're actually trying to fix anything in Russia or build anything. They can only be destructive. Yeah. And so it doesn't sound as though you're particularly optimistic that um, there would be a positive change as a result of Putin, you know, moving off the scene. Am I interpreting your view correctly if I say that? Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, the top priority that everyone in the world wants or most people in the world is for him to go one way or the other. 
just on principle, just get rid of him. Even if it's another Putin, we still want to get rid of this Putin. <laughs> um, yeah. So I w- I'm not saying, well, it will be even worse, so therefore he's ubiquitous, because that has been an argument by some people for a long time. Well, um, we better stick with Putin because um, better the devil, you know. You know, I'm not I'm not an advocate of that. No, I, top priority, we should get rid of him. Um, we yeah. or whoever else, or it would just be nice to outlive him for a lot of people because so many people haven't outlived him who should have done. Yeah, um, yeah. But certainly other bad things can definitely happen. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I'm not not very optimistic. I do think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about Russia at this point. And do you do you attach much significance to the idea that Putin might be unwell? Or is that just, you know, just a sort of usual speculation that swirls around dictators? Well, I think uh, it's fair. It's fair to suggest that he might be um because, uh, because just because of his age, you know, and uh, that's mm. a bit older than the average age um, for a typical Russian man, anyway. He doesn't drink, mm. so um, he has a chance. You know, he's well looked after. He has good doctors. Um, it's yeah. uh, uh, obviously yes. There's always speculation. It's been for a long time. People have hoped. People have uh, seen things that they thought might be signs of illness. Um, it has been a bit interesting. Um, some of his strange um, behaviour, sitting at the table. Um, just looking like he's gripping the table, gripping the chair yeah. a lot. He has been doing a bit of that. Um, so it would be normal for someone of that age to have some issues, some health issues. So um, that's neither here nor there in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of rumours of of exciting and important developments in Russia, you know, the possibility of a coup against Putin or or the, the idea that um, Gerasimov, the senior general, might have been uh, killed in a bombing. Uh, what do you make of these? There's really a competition among people to come out with something, some kind of inside information about Russia. And I try to be quite sceptical about what I do yeah. say, what I do pass on, because you see a rumour immediately, like uh, Grasimov has been bombed and he's been injured, you know, and 200 Russians were killed alongside him and things like that. You can't just spread that, write it or tweet it um, without confirmation. Uh, um, but I prefer to, to be more cautious about what type of news I put out there and what I tweet. And um, some people want to say, oh, you know what, um, I've got some information that you know Putin's put all the FSB chiefs under house arrest or whatever. Um, and certain people got some attention on Twitter from doing things like that. But there's no sort of hard, hard evidence, so so I try to avoid that sort of thing. Just just as it happens, I think that you know the case you mentioned, Gerasimov, who's you know the senior Russian general. Uh, that particular story has never been confirmed, has it? No, it hasn't. And some things that haven't been confirmed may well be true. Yeah. Um, he di- he wasn't actually at Victory Day, so we don't know. That's the thing about Russia: a lot of things we don't know. But at the same time, just because someone said it on Twitter, it doesn't <laughs> make it true either. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the economy. Um, obviously, very, very tough Western sanctions have been imposed with the promise of more more and tougher to come, particularly for better or worse. And there's, there's a certain amount of horse trading going on sort of as, as we speak to one another. But basically, uh, Europe is going to get off Russian hydrocarbons probably by the end of 2022. Um, so... I feel as if the the Russian economy and and Russian citizens probably haven't yet experienced the impact of these sanctions. Is it, do you think that's right? Not exactly. Um, I think they have, and that then they're, they're not letting on. 
actually how it's going. And they tend to right. sometimes prop themselves up artificially like they have done with the ruble or perhaps um, you could have state-owned companies keeping people on even when they don't have money to pay them. But in practice, you know, how do they get raw, raw materials to produce anything? How do they get? Uh, how do they buy things that they need from outside? Um, they even have problems with running their software, you know, because they can't get support. Um, yeah. And knowing how we're struggling now, um, it's just impossible to believe that they're not having very, very severe problems. Again, it's like with COVID, we talked about it all the time, nonstop, about how bad it was and what, what was going on. And they, they didn't particularly talk about it. And now they are the world's economic pariah and no one will do business with them. As I've said, it is quite difficult with their um, clamp down on free media to really know you know, how they're feeling it. But you can just imagine. But I suppose the, the counter argument is that Russia can sort of turn eastwards can import its uh you know goods and and um and sort of components from china can can find a market for its energy there obviously it's they're they're not going to get quite the prices they were getting uh in europe but overall they might be okay do do you think that's that will work for them or is it not that simple I don't think it's going to be very easy. Didn't they just almost default on their debt and um, they need uh, to be able to pay for things if they want to import lots of things? Um, China has been quite sympathetic in some ways by putting out lots of anti-NATO propaganda for them. But then it can be quite tough in doing business. And when it comes to money, um, they probably want some real payments Um for goods and at the same time China itself is having difficulties with its COVID lockdowns and and there's a huge global supply chain crisis due to that and other things. Um, so I'm not really convinced that Russia can just carry on, just pivot to China, um, get everything from there and carry on as if things are fine. I think we really should see some things happening in Russia. I would say over the next six months, we should see some pretty major difficulties, despite the fact that they do have oil and gas, I think, that they will be in pretty dire difficulties. And what what effects do you expect that then to have sort of politically and, and, and on the impact on the war as well? Well, I think the war will sort of grind to a halt in many ways. Um, they can certainly always fire some missiles at Ukraine, always kill some civilians, from a distance as they continue to do. Uh, but they've sort of shown that uh, bringing in a huge army is not a very good uh, plan. Even holding on to a few towns that they've occupied is, is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Um, now, but with the economy and dictatorships, again, there, there's an interesting thing. I mean, look at North Korea. It has no economy whatsoever, and yet um, yes. it has a very strong dictatorship. And no one's sort of even suggesting that Kim Jong-un is in trouble. Um, mm. So um, even with severe economic problems, it can just make a dictatorship even more brutal, so it doesn't necessarily mean that people would come out on the streets, unfortunately. But we'll just have to see uh, what transpires. Uh, I don't really like predicting very much. Um, but we can all see what's going on. And it could go in various directions. And that's what my chess friend, a grandmaster from Odessa, Mikhail Golubov, said uh, to me recently when I was talking to him for the newsletter. Um, he said there are many variations and no one can predict them. He's a chess grandmaster. 
Um, right. So you just have to look at the, um, all the different options of things that could happen and, and uh, sort of discuss and uh, watch it unfold, unfortunately, in a very bloody way, very tragically. So finally, let's talk a little bit about Ukraine. I wanted to focus on Russia because, in a way, you know, it's it's an opportunity talking to you to sort of get a bit of an insight into where where Russia might be. But in terms of Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is also locked into fighting a war that probably may, you know, in different forms last for years. It may not be the hot war we're seeing now, but as some kind of frozen conflict uh, that has an impact on countries that affects the ability of a of a country's economy to flourish, it, it it can, you know, undermine the politics and so on. So what are your observations about Ukraine's own path? It's done an amazing thing. It's held off the Russian military. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's made a lot of people completely transform their opinion of that country. But that doesn't mean necessarily that everything else in Ukraine is going to go is going to go swimmingly, does it? No, Ukraine is a poor country had been a poor country before this invasion yeah and had been drained it was uh weak it was weakened by the ongoing war in donbass yeah um so putin annexed crimea in 2014 and invaded then and was trying to wear down ukraine by continually maintaining that small scale war which um was having a political effect as well as an economic effect and well the good thing was as we've seen, the, the enormous courage of people and their willingness to participate in politics and come out on the streets and express their opinion. Um, but at the same time, that led to some sort of instability where um, there were lots and lots of protests. But uh, certainly, um, even if this invasion hadn't happened, there would have been there were lots of problems, and um, Zelensky was actually struggling politically, which we don't much talk about because everyone's forgotten everything there was happening before February 24th. Um, he's transformed himself into the most admired person in the world, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but certainly they had many, many internal problems and economic problems. People didn't have a lot of money. And from here, from where they are now, economically, it is going to be um, extremely challenging. And so I just wish them luck because what Putin's done to them, it's hard it's hard to see how they're going to recover from the trauma. And of course, the destruction, you know, somebody has to pay to rebuild rebuild Ukraine. And I'm sure Western countries will be generous. But ultimately, it, it's, um, you know, it, these are these are tough times for, for everyone. Yes. And we, we see it, you know, it's come here. It's come to everyone. Um, you, see, you meet refugees who have come over here. You know, mm. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know what they're supposed to do. Are they supposed to plan to be here? longer term or should they be thinking about going back in a few months everything's up in the air and everyone's totally disoriented it's one thing to sort of very courageously fight the russians but it's another thing to say okay what what do we do next which well it's everyone's problem which is why this is the doomsday podcast (laughs) because (laughs) no one at the moment knows what to do in this world situation with so many crises going on at the same time and ukraine has its own and we all have our own issues but at least they have the spirit and the belief in themselves um, and the world backing them. So they have that advantage. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's absolutely right. And that's probably a good point 
to uh, conclude this discussion. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode of Doomsday Watch. Thank you. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.